I'm David Murphy. I studied politics about a decade ago with Peter at the University of Salford. In the intervening time, I worked for BBC News in London as a newsreader and announcer at a radio station in Melbourne. Uh, but I've continued to read alternative economic theory and remain endlessly fascinated by the structural forces acting in broadly comparable ways on the housing market in the, on, and on the working poor who attempt to navigate this labyrinthine construct in each of the jurisdictions in which I've lived. Uh, so we're here to talk about the triumph of liberalism and the challenge to Marxist theory. I could talk about the promise of liberalism in 18th century Ireland and the failed revolutionary effort by the Irish, United Irishmen led by Wolf Tone. Uh, I could talk about the effect of the union with Britain on the industrialization of Ireland uh, and Marx's views on the destruction of the Irish industry uh, and poor governance, which he said would lead to either ruin or revolution. Uh, I could talk about the role of laissez-faire economic theory in the famine uh, with the example of the Belgian response as a comparison, uh, where a population comparably dependent on the potato crop were governed by an elite who pursued what we would consider today to be protectionist measures, and only 60,000 died. Only 60,000. Uh, the rise of the Land League and the hatred of the rentier, uh, failed attempts by Liberal Prime Minister William Gladstone to resolve the Irish question. I could talk about those too. The 1913 lockout of Dublin workers and Jim Larkin, which later became the subject of Ireland's only epic novel, Strumpet City, which I would totally recommend. Um, I could also talk about the socialist James Connolly, shot in a wheelchair in Kilmainham Jail for his role in the 1916 Easter Rising, the failure of Republican forces to win the Civil War or to set the agenda for the priorities of the new state. Uh, I could talk about the construction of the family as the basic unit of social life in the aftermath of the Civil War, most other collective institutions undermined or destroyed, uh, the substitution of the church for the former colonial oppressor, and the fracturing of nationalism along class lines. But I'm not going to talk about any of that. Uh, I'm going to try and stay in the present and discuss the challenges we face today while acknowledging very loud echoes from the past. Um, as those of you who have already met me know, I've been writing a manuscript on the Irish housing crisis for the last year, uh, the working title of which is Ballymun by Bicycle. Um, Ballymun is where I grew up and has since been demolished, uh, having been built in 1966 and months later declared Ireland's worst planning disaster. Uh, there were curious and intelligent people in Ballymun, as in every working class community. However, vanishingly few of our number had the opportunity to go to university, and examine the forces that govern our lives with the analytical tools of Marx, Hegel, or even Friedrich von Hayek. <laughs> Books about Ballymun, such as The Mon by Lynn Connolly, portray the town as having an exceptional community spirit in the face of adversity. Uh, Lynn, a story of prostitution, written with the feminist June Levine, uh, focused on the story of a Ballymun sex worker caught up in a famous murder case uh, in a country which was ignorant of the perils of sex work uh, the perpetrator was Lynn's partner and pimp, John Cullen. Uh, the story shocked 1980s Ireland and promoked, provoked demonstrations. Uh, Lynn testified in the case and remains in hiding in Britain to this day. Uh, Dying to Survive by Rachel Kyo features a graphic photo on its front cover of a pretty blonde girl with gangrenous skin in the folds of her arms where injection sites had become infected. She had been self-administering heroin uh, to which she was addicted. She has since fully recovered. Uh, these stories, while important, form a sort of dramaturgy which the rest of the society has consumed, while never reflecting on the material conditions that led to the 
um, the adversity and the social alienation within the community and without, and indeed in the minds of the people who live there, uh, that led them to feel under siege or to be so vulnerable. Uh, and I quote uh, from Senate and Cobb, the reason the prejudiced image exists at all um, is that it serves a purpose, as does this whole scheme of individuals recognised and respected by virtue of ability. This purpose is to continue the iniquities of the world of the 19th century industrial capitalism on new terrain. My goal in writing this book is mainly to provide the Irish reader with some analytical tools and historical corollaries to describe the situation of housing in Ireland in 2019. This is a journalistic exercise primarily with a little autobiography and a review of the literature available that describes the problems we face. For if the Irish experience tells us anything, it's that we've been here before and without deep and lasting reform to labour exploitation, financialization, and rent-seeking behaviour, we will be again. Many people have undertaken extraordinary original research to provide some of the insights I rely on and I owe them a great deal, not just in terms of uh, uh, the manuscript, but personally as well, for it was only in describing to myself the issues I came to know so intimately as a child growing up in Ballymun, the importance and centrality of land and place to the society and how it informs the social order of the country as well. The ephemeral, the ephemeral nature of social relations for me is best represented by the challenges and opportunities provided by the real estate market and the crisis in housing. How we understand the issue of housing gives us an insight into how, under late liberalism or neoliberalism, individuals with no access to capital are in a contest for space, with the state also acting as a speculator, institutional investors and others who are seeking a return on their capital investment as real estate continues to outstrip the rewards from many other forms of economic activity. The housing crisis is but one manifestation of several concurrent crises arising from the treatment internationally of housing as an asset class, uh, the involvement of Ireland as a political entity within the single currency, the shadow banking system, and the structures of the Anglo-American economic project, normally called neoliberalism, which came to replace the way we describe the old colonial systems of power and exploitation. The crisis is a manifestation of a deep malaise afflicting the societies of the Western world and is an advanced stage in Ireland for a number of reasons, namely, but not limited to, highly speculative development preceding the crisis, early bailout on bad terms, uh, the collapse of the construction sector and the failure to fund infrastructural development of which housing provision forms an essential part. The striking annual increases in the value of the housing stock, only 10% of which in Ireland can be considered uh, non-market or uncommodified, also sees the state selling land at the prevailing market rate and spending now 750 million euro a year on homeless assistance payments to the private market, creating upward inflationary pressure on rents. Alex Marsh from the University of Bristol speaking about the housing welfare bill in the UK makes the point we have gone from subsidising properties to subsidising people. Housing has become financialized and increasingly embedded in the global financial system. Some of the problems in the housing market are, if you like, coincidentally about housing. Even for market fundamentalists in Ireland who would wish to see a functional market which most can access, it's not a pretty picture. At the start of this year, one of the country's leading housing economists said builders cannot deliver houses at the right price for most buyers. A good body chief economist Dermot O'Leary suggested housing shortages would continue for most income earners, even if supply were to double from its present rate. As foreign capital competes for sites with local buyers, spiralling building costs and booming land prices have pushed the average price across the country to €237,000, 
Using revenue office statistics, he calculated roughly half of wage earners could only afford a mortgage of €175,000 under current lending rules. They have a 2.5 uh, annual limit you know, on income, I think. Uh, in Dublin, more than half of new homes were sold for more than that figure, with one in five sold at over half a million, with asking prices in the city going up by €1,000 a month on average in the last year. Dr. Rory, Rory Hearn from the University of Maynooth makes the point uh, that this is not a miscalculation or an unpleasant side effect of government policy. It's very important to them that this should happen. The housing crisis has also been, sorry, this is a quote from Rory Hearn. Uh, the housing crisis has also been caused by wider government policy from 2010 to encourage the entry of global investors and vulture funds via various tax incentives, lobbying, the fire sale of assets into Ireland in order to offload toxic loans from NAMA. NAMA is the National Asset Management Agency, which is our bad bank. You probably have one here, I think. Yeah, anyway. um, uh, and the banks. The rising house prices and rents post-2013 were also viewed positively and were promoted as an enticement to investors, while rising prices and rents were also viewed positively for rehabilitating the balance sheet of the banks. Uh, core aim of all policy post-2008. The impact on the housing system was not considered an issue. I argue in the manuscript that the Irish state have not answered the questions raised by groups like the 19th Century Land League, to which they arguably owe their existence, the question of dispossession, evident not just from the number who are homeless in institutional settings um, or in insecure accommodation, uh, but from the regular episodes of mass emigration since the state's formation. Since the inception of the state in 1922, land reform, which from the formation of the state was piecemeal, uh, and often used to shore up political support within local communities was open to abuse. It is renting the land back to the people which provided the most potential income from the point of view of Irish elites, whoever they may be. Uh, regardless of what happens with European tax, tax harmonisation or the regularisation of the shadow banking system, it will be reasonable to assume that this situation will not change without a re-evaluation of the nature of private property rights in Ireland. The establishment in Ireland is, however, in agreement with the neoliberal consensus, with the official opposition providing confidence and supply to a minority government uh, uh, for several years now, and they would divorce, we are told, but for baby Brexit. Uh, it could also be no coincidence that the possibilities offered by Ireland's legal framework, uh, its relationship to Britain and cultural inheritance, intersect with the rent-seeking priorities of neoliberalism itself. The form of economic management prevalent in Ireland gives preference to international capital in all things. The US, our main trading partner, is the progenitor of this iteration of Anglo-American capitalism since the Big Bang, 1986, and the Washington Consensus in 1992. Our status as the largest tax haven within the sterling zone, and by some measures the world, tells you much about who the government worry about as a constituency, and yet these goals are mostly unstated. Minister for Housing Damien English as recently as May this year, said, our solutions are working, despite the highest recorded homelessness figures in the state's history, numbering over 10,000, a figure which includes 3,800 children. On Taoiseach, our Prime Minister, Leo Varadkar, said within the last few days that there will always be a certain number of people in emergency accommodation. As he attempts to normalise this extraordinary state of affairs, in a society where many are quite comfortable and willing to believe uh, news that is consistent with their experience of life, this achieves a status of the permanent lie. Writing in The Origins of Totalitarianism, Hannah Arendt describes this phenomenon as the result of a consistent and total substitution of lies for factual truth, 
uh, is not that the lie will now be accepted as truth and the truth be defamed as a lie, but the sense by which uh, we take our bearings in the real world and the category of truth versus falsehood is among the mental means to this end is being destroyed. <clears throat> so what we are left with is a working class in Ireland who experience a gap between cultural goals and institutional means, as home ownership is still seen as the ideal and an important class marker. The failure to achieve this in these circumstances is therefore easily framed as a personal failure. As Stephen Lukes put it, the dominant ideology works its magic by persuading subordinate groups to believe actively in the values that explain and justify their own subordination. Or to return to Senate and Cobb, who described how this dynamic is self-reinforcing, the search for respect is thwarted, the individual feels personally responsible for the failure, and the whole attempt accustoms him to think that to have individual respect, you must have social inequality. As in any place, class in Ireland is a deeply psychological affair and is not always made obvious by material deprivation, though they frequently intersect. Uh, 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 a class society, Sartre has remarked, is a society of scarce resources unfairly distributed because some have arbitrary power. The situation here is one where the psychological dimensions of class serve a purpose in legitimating deprivation, unfair allocation of resources, and paltry rewards. Close quote. Since the events of 2008, a paltry reward has all that has been on offer for many in Ireland, if you did not leave, as 300,000 of us did. Uh, yet the cultural parameters of success are still broadly the same. Durkheim called this state economic enemy, an internalized shame, uh, which is compounded by neoliberal economic management and its focus on individual attainment, which is ultimately a project about the restoration of upper class power. They derive their power through the mechanisms of the colonial state, with a laissez-faire approach to economic management, rebranded as neoliberalism in the information age, adapted to suit the ends of the tech utopians, rent-seeking financiers, and the privatization of public goods. The workforce is bifurcated into a core and a periphery with a scant safety net below after a decade of deflation and austerity following the global financial crisis. Workers in finance, tech, and pharmaceuticals, and the chartered professions are well compensated, while the rest compete for resources, in many ways more like the United States than Europe, particularly with the predominance and spiralling cost of private health insurance. The Irish middle class, though greatly expanded from their humble beginnings in the Dublin civil service, and the professions arguably owe much of their cultural outlook to this generational memory. I probably would say that, so forgive me. Uh, Frank O'Connor, writing in 1942, said an author such as Chekhov could write as easily of a princess as of a peasant girl or a merchant's daughter, but in Ireland, the moment a writer raises his eyes from the slums and cabins, he finds nothing but a vicious and ignorant middle class, and for aristocracy, the remnants of an English garrison, alien in religion and education. From such material, he finds it almost impossible to create a picture of life a realistic literature is clearly impossible. I'm just being very self-indulgent there, I'm sorry. <laughs> Even for the middle class, though, there is uh, too much of a tendency, Althusser says, to regard different classes of people as living in different worlds. One speaks of alienation of labor, for instance, thinking workers bored by the tedium of the machine, but seldom of the manager bored by pushing papers. Of course, these experiences feel entirely different to the persons involved, but they have the same root cause. To have class differences, you must first have a generator, a common force or structure that divides people up. Uh, that is a sounding cop quote. Uh, I believe that first and foremost, the force is where you live and how much agency you had in the decision as to where that would be. To give you a flavor of where I first consciously found myself, uh, I'll read the first of three extracts from the manuscript. In the town's neighboring Ballymun, 
Santry, Glasnevin and Finglas, I often went on wild goose chases to find some person or place I wasn't sure existed. I hadn't found a gang for protection, so I learned to line up my bicycle at an angle and bolt out of the lift through the squat doorless lobby into the daylight beyond. On my journeys around north inner suburban Dublin, through the sprawling maze of flats, tower blocks and tiny terraced council houses, I raced along swollen arterial roads and smaller empty streets. The bicycle was the perfect vehicle as I took these solitary journeys. Others have written on the subject of Ballymun with an enduring sense of it as a place with a remarkable sense of community. I tend to see it in terms of a shared experience of an institution. At its best, it was like a dreary school where no classes took place or a prison with day release. Ballymun was a sink estate, starved of funding to make improvements to civic communities. It had an image problem in the rest of the country, and if you were from there, so did you. The character and physical environment of Ballymun was inseparable from its alienation from the rest of the city. As a child, I crossed an invisible border that demarcated an enclave of poverty amidst the light industry and airport to the north and the inner suburbs of North Dublin to the south. Future-proofed motorways linked with enormous sodium vapour lamps cut through the town like wounds on a skeletal body whose only nourishment came in mean, taxpayer-subsidised rations. On leaving, the air seemed less stale and the colours brighter, incongruent with the sombre grey towers which stood behind the brightly lit embankments. This view from the road was most people's experience of the Ballymun of that time, travelling uninterrupted before pausing at an elaborate roundabout visible from my bedroom window on the fourth storey of an adjacent tower block. My room faced onto a large balcony with a concrete balustrade about waist high, but with no glass or awning. At night I often watched with my arms folded on the ledge as those drivers briefly surveyed the scene before accelerating crisply in towards, toward the airport nearby. The second reading is a little longer, uh, and in this I try to describe Tina's long grip on Ireland, uh, though I had not heard the term late liberalism uh, before I encountered Peter again a few days ago. Uh, but to my mind, this legitimizes its use, and I'll be considering it very carefully. Okay. I'd like to open with a party scene. At a party in London, in the spring of 1882, San Francisco journalist Henry George was introduced to the English philosopher Her Herbert Spencer. Though he was angling to meet Alfred Tennyson or the playwright Robert Browning, the prospect of meeting Spencer gave him real pleasure. George's book, Progress and Poverty, a treatise on inequality, the cyclic nature of industrialized economies, and the use of land value tax as a remedy, was published to acclaim three years before and had made use of Spencer's arguments against the private ownership of land, which he had made three decades earlier. Spencer was by then the most famous intellectual of his day, credited with coining the phrase survival of the fittest and there is no alternative in defense of free markets, a favorite refrain of Margaret Thatcher. He must have already known the answer when he asked the younger George, who had written a defense of the Irish Land League a year before for his opinion of the rent strike taking place in Ireland at the time. George believed, oh, sorry. George believed Spencer shared his views and expressed his support for the protesters who by then had been imprisoned at which point Spencer burst into vehement dissent. They have only got what they deserve, said Spencer. They are inciting the people to refuse to pay to their landlords what is rightfully theirs, rent. This speech and the manner of its delivery so differed from what was expected of the man who in social statics wrote, equity does not permit property in land. That Mr. George was at first astonished and then disgusted at this flat denial of principle. It is evident we cannot agree on this matter, was all that he could say, and he abruptly, abruptly left Mr. Spencer. That bad-tempered encounter in the rarefied atmosphere of a London salon became more than a quibble over solutions, namely Spencer's proposed land nationalisation or George's single tax. 
In competing polemics over the years, the elder man accused George of believing the individual has no rights. In response, George said Spencer was guilty of intellectual prostitution and that being compromised for an anxiety for honours. Progress and poverty inspired land reform movements across the English-speaking world, and George's pamphlet, The Irish Land Question, was explicitly intended as an appeal to the land leagues. While Henry George did not support the seizure of private land in Ireland, he saw the tendency to concentration of ownership and the primacy of the rights of landlords as a denial of a right to the elements necessary to the maintaining of life. Uh, open quote. Since all the Irish people have the same equal right to live, if they are all in Ireland by the same permission of nature, so that all the rest of them could not justly say to any one of them, you have not the same right to live as we have. Therefore, we will pitch you out of Ireland into the sea. Close quote. As individuals, we bring assumptions to bear on the issue of housing that are grounded in an emotive view of history. As a people, our tortured relationship with the land has left us feeling that once we have a freehold, our rights should be as unrestricted as our former oppressors. Open quote. Perhaps it's a lingering aftermath of 800 years of British oppression and colonialism, said Dr. Vittorio Profaci, a philosophy professor at University College Cork. But Ireland has a profoundly unhealthy understanding of private property, thinking of it as our private fiefdom. Any interference by third parties, including the state, is perceived as the essence of social injustice. He said this gives too much power to wealthy individuals and financial institutions. The Irish state, in aping its colonial predecessor, has failed us. Uh, sorry, the quote ended. Uh, this is me now. <laughs> the fact of the state's inability to house its citizens, and though it long ago industrialised, the persistence of mass emigration suggests deep structural problems. Dublin has had a strong tradition of devastating housing outcomes for at least the last three centuries. The same researchers who discovered this also found, having trawled through 20,000 records, that large increases in property values are a recent phenomenon, a finding consistent with similar studies in other states. The current crisis in housing owes as much to this recent extraordinary period of land speculation by the state, as well as investors, as it does to the collapse in house building and an ideological retreat from the concept of public housing. Rampant income inequality, which afflicts the Irish more than almost any other people in the European Union, disguises the gravity of the crisis for those who can afford to participate in the private market. The Irish state, since its conception, never lost sight of the value of the land under its control. Through the Land Commission, the ruling party bought land and subdivided it into parcels, often for local political advantage. It was the inheritor of some 250,000 ground rents. The clientelism inherent in its efforts was the prologue to the rig system of today. Ireland's greatest export has not been beef or even pharmaceuticals. It has been rent. Within Ireland, it has both been necessary and possible to co-opt the leadership in this endeavour, not unlike other colonised societies. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes, goes an apocryphal quote attributed to the American writer Mark Twain. A forceful eviction at a farm near Strokestown last year uh, rocked the country, with one commentator describing the events as the most shameful incident since Black Jack Adair's scourge of evicting tenants from his acquired lands on Donegal's Derry Vey estate in April 1861. The property was repossessed over unpaid debts uh, to KBC Bank. The bank had instructed a security firm based in Northern Ireland to forcibly remove two elderly brothers and their sister. At least one family member suffered injuries as members of the police force looked on. A few days later, in excess of 70 people stormed the farm in the early hours of the morning. Eight were injured and four vehicles were set alight. One of the security personnel was later revealed to be 49-year-old debt collector Ian Gordon, a former British soldier. Um, 
The events at Strokestown were an echo from her history and a warning. The dynamic of coercion and reaction framed by violence is a familiar story which, in its reenactment, inflames passions but solves nothing. Martin Luther King, writing in 1963 about his nonviolent campaign for racial equality in Birmingham, Alabama, spoke of nonviolence as a powerful and just weapon, a weapon unique in history with, which cuts without wounding and ennobles the person who wields it. The success of the campaign King describes in Why We Can't Wait was made possible by embracing nonviolent cooperation and acknowledging that often opposition comes only, not only from the conservatives who cling to tradition, but also from the extremist militants who favor neither the old nor the new. The past is not a different country and we are not bound to it. It is the same country and we can do things differently. But it is not enough to repudiate the vigilantism of Strokestown and our history of violent reaction without addressing the structural violence of the Irish state and its institutions. The scale of the crisis we face is not limited to the homelessness, sorry, it's not limited to the homeless, but the vast number at risk of homelessness. The crisis, which has left 10,000 of our citizens without a home, requires us to stage a showdown with the rentier, who in this latest iteration has found new ways to extract resources using the protection of the state to make a few wealthy by exploiting and displacing the rest. Today's crisis is a crisis of social relations which has many faces. It is in our relationship with Europe, our role in international finance, both of which facilitate the tide of capital flowing out of the country since 2008. The bailout which followed revealed the architecture of the crisis, but its foundations were built a long time ago. The ideas that dominate our thinking about land and rights are so old, the names of their authors have receded from memory. In piecing together that fragmented history, we can see that the mistakes of the past are not artifacts of a different era, but a centuries-old problem repackaged for our times. So what do we do? Alex Marsh from Bristol uh, describes what might be possible within the current set of arrangements. Um, ensuring people are adequately housed prior to rather than overconsumption by others, increasing housing supply, land value tax on vacant land, taxation of second homes, consistent housing tax treatment for primary residences, smoothing volatility in housing supply, look carefully, sorry, this is not my writing, uh, looking carefully at macroprudential regulation, extending council tax bans to higher price properties, the list goes, goes on. But I don't think it's enough. The problem of the rentier and its toxic effect on, on the self-perception and uh, sorry on self-perception in class in Ireland is, to my mind, so deep and so urgent that nothing less than a reworking of how we conceptualise land and its use, rather than its exchange value, is what is required. So, to coin a phrase, what is to be done? Wholesale decommodification de de of all land controlled by the state, along with downward pressure on property values so that their inflation remains at zero, could be our starting point. We could achieve this through the implementation of rent controls and the socialization of the banking system. I'm really dreaming now. Uh, Paul Mason, writing in Post-Capitalism, suggests socially just form of financial repression aimed at controlling write-down of the massive debt overhang and by setting an explicit target for sustainable growth and an inflation target on the high side of the recent average. Restructure the banking system into a mixture of utilities, earning capped profit rates, non-profit local and regional banks, credit unions and peer-to-peer -peer lenders and a comprehensive state-owned provider financial services as a lender of last resort. Mason goes on to suggest in post-capitalism that the highly automated economy of the future is one in which people work in cooperative, self-managed, non-hierarchical teams 
Uh, and in this network future, we could, of course, include a greater emphasis on housing cooperatives for those who wish to live in particular communities or decommodified social housing stock built for or bought from the deflated existing stock for those who have to leave their circumstances for all, all the reasons you can imagine people need to. If they're happy with where they are and wish to build a community with others, the mode of ownership could be transferable. These are all just ideas, uh, but we don't discuss them. Uh, the Irish workforce should assume that they will again be faced with a large-scale financial crisis, property price crash, or both. The architecture of the financial system in which Ireland is deeply integrated has not changed uh, uh, in the intervening years since 2008, and another crash is inevitable. This will either provide another opportunity for those in control to fulfil their structural imperatives and carry out large-scale restructuring of public assets in Ireland, unless the workforce plans for this event, requiring the government to put in place arrangements for a constitutional convention on pain of a general strike. <laughs> Ireland is a small country and will get nowhere without support of other small countries in the European Union, many of which are afflicted by a similar crisis. The activities of housing advocacy groups such as Inner City Helping Homeless, while vital in saving lives and ameliorating suffering in the short term, do not challenge the orthodoxy of private property rights and land speculation, calling instead for greater provision of public housing. If these charities were to ambitiously augment their activities to include emancipation of the poor, rendering them, rendering them no longer as supplicants, they would better serve themselves and their constituents. As that famous socialist Oscar Wilde said, the best amongst the poor are never grateful. They are ungrateful, discontented, disobedient, and rebellious, and they are quite right to be so. Charity they feel to be a ridiculously inadequate mode of partial restitution or a sentimental dole, usually accompanied by some impertinent attempt on the part of the sentimentalists to tyrannise over their private lives. Why should they be grateful for the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table? In the same essay, he goes on to suggest the proper aim should be to reconstruct society on such a basis that poverty is impossible. Growing up as a child in public housing, which was, I'm reaching the end now. <laughs> Growing up as a child in public housing, which was so aesthetically different from everything around it, administered by non-residents of the town, designed by people who would never live there, it is evident that we need to bear in mind, uh, this is uh, Berksack, Hayek's arguments about the socially constituted, tacit and limited nature of individual human knowledge. Subjectivity of knowledge means that the welfare state officials confront an insuperable knowledge problem. How are they to know whether the implementation of a particular policy will enhance the capabilities of any unique individual? This is not a problem derived simply from plural conceptions of good living. It is a problem of how to achieve, in particular cases, an intersubjective standard of good living among diverse and dispersed individuals, each of whom possesses unique knowledge of the circumstances of time and place that affects his or her ability to live well. This is a factual knowledge problem, not an ethical knowledge problem. I will end with one more extract, uh, a short one. Uh, from the manuscript, which I hope will illustrate uh, the view from outside Ireland where, because of this hallowed set of arrangements, so many of us end up, and I start with a description of my hometown. It is at once a colonial city and a living metaphor. It is, an imposing, and it is imposing and exclusive, but homely and faded. It is where suburban people also share a rich social life. The adaptable gale, a quality often a curse, is able to imagine simultaneously a pantheon of characters in their world, all of whom are possible. This interior richness springs from the dead winter landscape, keeps us warm through the darkest nights and spaces which lie between the inland towns and coastal cities. We come together frequently in the community hall, the church and the pub to talk, debate and affirm. The capital bears the scars of our war on each other. Apart from the civil war or the bullet holes of the 1916 rising, now mediated through the market, it is a space contested more fiercely than many of its peers. 
2017, there were only 12 streets in the world more expensive to rent than Grafton Street. The city and its residents have an outsized and at times inflated sense of significance for, after all, Dublin is the capital of a country with a diaspora of some 70 million people. On, on some level, this is understood. Dublin has soft cultural power as well for our symbolic value and what we represent, our stand against colonialism, our writers, our membership of the European Union, our de jure neutrality, and yet it is a site of avarice where it might have been a beacon of hope for the diaspora who might one day see Ireland as a place where at last they could have stayed. <laughs>